0: Good morning to everyone. We've been studying the book of Mark for a few months now, and there are a couple of reasons why we're studying this book. There are many reasons, but a couple that I have affirmed on at least two occasions since we began this series. And I want to begin this morning by affirming them yet again as to, as to why, why are we studying this book? Why are we spending so much time in this portion of the Bible? What is our goal? And uh, when we stop and think about it, I guess our, the end that we have in view is twofold, two chief ends as we study uh, this gospel together. The first is what we might call polemical. It's a little controversial. Everybody likes a little controversy. And so there's a little controversy going on. And we're motivated by polemics. We are studying this book with a view to discerning, declaring, and defending the biblical gospel and the biblical Christ. Almost 50% of this country's population claims to be born again. A large percentage attends church services regularly. It begs an obvious question. Why doesn't it look like it? Why doesn't it look like 50% of this country's population is born again? There are two reasons. The first is this. The church has failed, by and large. The church has failed to proclaim a biblical gospel. Rather than proclaim the depravity of man, the sinfulness of man, the sovereignty of God, the beauty of Christ's righteousness, and the absolute necessity of repentance from sin, the church talks about a God whose greatest objective is to make us happy. second reason is this. The church has failed to present a biblical Christ rather than present a mighty Savior who propitiates an angry God through his substitutionary sacrifice. The church talks about a Christ who wants to be our best friend. And so, our motivation is polemical. It is to engage the church. It is to engage evangelicalism to look again at the biblical Christ, to look again at the biblical gospel. And so, by the time we arrive at the end of this study, chapter 16, I hope we are perfectly clear on these two Uh, who is Christ as he is revealed in the Bible? And what is the gospel as it is revealed in the Bible? The second reason, or the second end we have in view, is pastoral, it's very personal. We are studying this book with a view to encountering, embracing, and enjoying the Lord Jesus Christ. We are made for something far greater than anything this world has to offer. Let me repeat that. We are made for something far greater than anything this world has to offer. C.S. Lewis, writing decades ago, said, If I find in myself a desire... Which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We were made for something else. We were made for something far greater than anything this world has to offer us. Friends, the right soulmate will not make you happy. The right family will not make you happy. The right house will not make you happy. The right career will not make you happy. The right amount of money will not make you happy. Christ alone is the sole satisfaction. So by the time we arrive again at the end of chapter 16, I hope and pray that we are all seeking and savoring the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's why we're spending so much time in this book. Where are we? We're in the 10th chapter. And the verses we're going to look at today are actually part of a subsection this section begins in chapter 9, verse 14, more or less, and goes through to the end of chapter 10, so chapter and a half, a bunch of verses and a number of in- incidents crammed in here. And basically what we have are eight lessons from the lips of the Lord Jesus as he's instructing his disciples, as he's preparing them for his departure, and as he's preparing them for what lay ahead, the cross, he imparts these eight invaluable lessons. We've looked at the first five. Today we come to the sixth. Now there is a bridge. There is a close relationship between the fifth lesson and the one we're going to look at today, the sixth lesson. And so let me very briefly remind you of the fifth. It's found in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 10, where we read the following. And they were bringing children to him Last Sunday, I affirmed that the Lord Jesus is basically teaching three truths or, or commanding, issuing three commandments in these verses through this lesson. We are firstly to value children. We are secondly to evangelize children. And we are thirdly to imitate children. That third commandment is what is primarily in view in these verses. It's the main lesson, it's the main thing, the main subject of, The main motif in those few verses, we have it stated succinctly again in verse 15 from the lips of the Lord Jesus. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. We must imitate children. We are not to be childish. We are to be childlike. The message of the Lord Jesus is quite wonderful. He has taught us earlier in this chapter that the gospel, now, that is the, the relationship between a Christ and the church, the relationship between Christ and his, his mystical body, the relationship between Christ and his bride, his people, it is mirrored in what? It is demonstrated in what? It is embedded in what? The relationship between husband and wife. It was instituted right back at the time of creation. That in the creation order, and in the relationship between Adam and Eve, and subsequently in the relationship between every husband and wife, God has embedded the gospel. He has given us a picture of the gospel. He has given us a clear revelation, declaration of the relationship between Christ and the church, that when a husband gives himself for his wife, remember, a headship is not a question of who gets to rule Headship is a question of who gets to die. When a husband gives himself for his wife, pours himself out for his wife, when he loves his wife, we have embedded in that relationship the very essence and nature of the gospel. That the Lord Jesus has laid down his life. The Lord Jesus has given himself. The Lord Jesus has poured out himself. To do what? To purchase his bride. To purchase his people purchase the church. But not only is the gospel embedded in creation, the Lord Jesus tells us in these verses, 13 through 16, that the way in which we believe the gospel, the way in which we receive the kingdom of God, is also embedded in creation, in children. That is, in the relationship between children and their parents. Infants live in complete, humble dependence upon their parents. That is how we are to believe. That is how we receive the gospel. That is how we enter the kingdom of God. We come to God through Christ in childlike dependence upon God. That's why I affirmed this last week. Let me repeat it now. That when your child calls for you in the dead of night, be it the first time, be it the sixth time, when your child climbs into your lap with that book, at the end of the day, as the sun sets and wants you to read to him, read to her. When your child cries out for you after falling to the ground. When your child takes you by the hand to steady himself over uneven ground. When your child looks to you for protection and direction. When your child calls out to you, Daddy. Calls out to you, "Mummy." Do you realize what you are seeing? Do you realize what you are hearing? God has embedded in that relationship what it means to believe in him. God has embedded in that childlike, humble, absolute dependence, that relationship between infant and parent, whereby the infant, the child, cries out, Daddy, Mommy, complete dependence. That is how we are to receive the kingdom, of God. We are to, yes, value children, verses 13 through 16. We are to evangelize children, yes. And we are to imitate children. That is the lesson that the Lord Jesus imparts to the twelve, to his disciples in that small text. Now what is the relationship between that and the lesson he now gives beginning in verse 17 all the way through to verse 31? Before I read the verses, let me just give you a preview. Here's what the Lord Jesus is doing, and here's what Mark is doing by the inspiration of the Spirit of God and why he has ordered the material in the manner in which he has. The Lord Jesus has said, look, this is how you are to believe. Childlike dependence. Now, beginning in verse 17, we have a different incident, and in this incident, he is reinforcing what he has said in verses 13 through 16. How so? Having told them how they are to believe, he now in effect says to them, here's an example of what I'm not talking about. That's what he does. Here's an example of what I'm not talking about. Here's an example of the precise opposite. Here's an example of how the vast majority of people, how, how humanity in his sinfulness and in his rebellion, this is how people come to me. This is what I'm not talking about. And so follow along as I begin reading the 17th verse. And as he was setting out on his journey... And said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, In case you missed it the first time through, there is a direct correlation between what the Lord Jesus reveals, the lesson he teaches in verses 13 through 16, and the lesson he now teaches in verses 17 through 31. Again, what is it? He has de- demonstrated the true nature of faith. He has demonstrated the essence of that faith by which we are saved, that faith by which we inherit the kingdom of God. That faith by which we receive the kingdom of God. It is childlike dependence. That is how we come to God. We come to God crying, Abba, Father. That cry issues from the soul. It issues from a soul which is stricken with poverty of spirit. It issues, emanates from a soul that understands its sinfulness before a holy God understands its standing and its precarious standing before a holy God, understands that God would be perfectly just to damn it right now. It comes in brokenness. And it comes through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it comes crying, save me, Father. Arms extended wide. Now in verse 17 through to verse 31, the Lord Jesus reinforces that how? What I've just described for you, this isn't it. This is the opposite. This is how people come in their their sinfulness and in their ignorance. This is how people think they can approach me. This is how people think they're saved. And so through this portrayal of the negative, he is reinforcing his lesson in verses 13 through 16. Now what I want to do is this. I'm going to derive five Essential truths, principles, lessons from these verses, that's going to be the second part of the sermon. They're going to come up behind us later on. What I want to do right now is take you through this text and explain it to make sure we understand the ins and outs. We're not going to go into great, great detail, but there are some things we need to wrestle with here. The first thing that becomes obvious as we read these verses is that there are actually three distinct but related conversations. This is not one whole. A conversation. There are actually three distinct yet related conversations. We have the first conversation in verses 17 through 22 where the Lord Jesus converses with a young man. Uh, Luke tells us that this young man is actually a ruler, probably a ruler of the synagogue. He is a religious man. He is a young man. He is a wealthy man. This is conversation number one between Jesus and the young man. Then we have a second conversation beginning in verse 23 through to verse 27. The young man leaves. And yet what happened, what transpires between Jesus and that young man is now the start. It initiates a conversation, a second conversation between Jesus and the twelve. And that conversation goes through more or less to verse 27. And then what's the first word in verse 28? Peter. So the twelve are still there. And I don't doubt that Christ's comments are still directed to the twelve as a whole, but Peter now sort of steps to the forefront. And this third conversation now takes place between Peter and Jesus. So three distinct conversations. There's a lot of movement here. And yet they are all related. So work through conversation number one with me. Verses 17 through 22, there are three units. We find the first unit in verses 17 and 18 young man, he comes up, a lot of respect here, he kneels before the Lord Jesus, and he puts a question to him at the end of verse 17, good teacher, great question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So there's your theme for this entire section all the way through to verse 31. In verse 18, we're still in that first unit, Jesus responds, it's fascinating, He doesn't answer the young man's question. He will do that in due course. But no, not first. First things first. What does the Lord Jesus do in verse 18? He tackles the way in which the young man has addressed him. So in the middle of verse 17, good teacher. He has a question, burning question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? In effect, Jesus says, we'll get to your question in just a moment. First things first. Let's not put the cart before the horse. First things first. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why would Jesus object to this man designating this word good to him? Why would the Lord Jesus object to this man describing him, addressing him as good? It is because this man has a skewed understanding of what it means to be good. This man has a distorted, deficient understanding of what goodness is. Good teacher... This is the way, this is the manner, this is the fashion in which this man would address any rabbi. This is the way he would address any teacher, any leader in the nation of Israel. He would have addressed him as good. You're good, I'm good, we're all good. His categories are all wrong. And the Lord Jesus doesn't let it slip. He doesn't let it pass because this is fundamental. This man has a distorted, twisted, skewed understanding of what it means to be good. And he will not let it go. You address me as good. Why do you address me as good? You think that's the only way in which I'm good? There is none good but God who is in heaven. What is he doing? He's challenging his categories. And he's forcing him to do what? Reconsider his understanding and his notion of Of what it means to be good. That's unit number one. Unit number two. Verses 19 through 20. Now the Lord Jesus answers his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus do? Verse 19. You know the commandments. Why doesn't he preach the gospel? Why doesn't he point to himself? Why doesn't he say believe in me? You must feed on me. You must drink of me. You must rest in me. Why does he drive him? Back to the commandments. You know the commandments. Because this man doesn't understand what it means to be good. This man has has an understanding of goodness which is completely out of whack. Before Christ can give him the good news, this man must be perfectly clear as to the nature of the bad news. Right? Back to the commandments. Back to the law. You know the commandments. And the Lord Jesus quotes 6. Verse 19. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. You know the commandments. Here they are. Take a look at them. Because I'm really concerned about what you mean by that word good. How does this man respond? Verse 20. He said to him, see he's still not getting it, teacher, all these I have kept from my Now we're really getting to the heart of what this young man means by his question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He is not looking for the way that leads to eternal life. What is he looking for? He is looking to the Lord Jesus to affirm that he is already on that way. You're good. I'm good. I've kept the law. Jesus takes him to the law. He still doesn't see it. What a claim. All these I have kept from my youth. Unit number three. Look at the pity, the compassion in the Lord Jesus. Verse 21. Looking at him, he loved him. It's a love of pity, a love of compassion. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. In other words, young man, let me take you by the hand. And let's take another look at the law. Uh, You've come to me, and you're the one who used the word. You're throwing it around loosely. Good. You do not understand what it means to be good. And so let me direct you where we discover what it means to be good, what it means to be righteous in God's sight. You still think you're good. You make this bold claim to obey the law. Let me take you by the hand, and let's go back and take another look at the law. What is the tenth commandment? You shall not covet. And so in the light of that commandment, without actually expressing the words, that is what the Lord Jesus has in view. And this young man undoubtedly knows that is what the Lord Jesus has in view. Jesus gives him a commandment which will draw his attention To that 10th commandment, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. What's his response? Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possession. You see, he has broken what? The 10th commandment. Here is a man who is in love. With his wealth. Here is a man who is in love with his prosperity. Here is a man who basks in the radiance of his riches. They are to him an idol. The Lord Jesus, this verse has been misinterpreted and misused in many ways. The Lord Jesus is not calling in this verse for a redistribution of wealth. The Lord Jesus is not, is not saying that all the wealthy and rich are inherently evil. The Lord Jesus is not saying, look, all the wealthy and rich, they have attained their riches by oppressing others and through injustice and oppression, and therefore they must give it all away. No, the Lord Jesus has something very pointed, very very, very clear in view. He is taking this man to the law, challenging his concept of what it means to be good. My friend, you have broken the Tenth Commandment. You know you have broken the Tenth Commandment. It is your idol. Covetousness is an idol. Your wealth is what you worship. Now by implication, friend, do you understand what that means? If you won't let go of your wealth, if you don't esteem me, if you don't esteem the kingdom. If you don't esteem eternal life enough to lose everything for it, that means you're covetous. That means you have an idol. If you have an idol, do you understand what it means? Go all the way back to the first commandment. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. So, friend, you're not only guilty of breaking the tenth commandment. You're idolatrous. You are covetous. You are guilty of breaking the first commandment, meaning what? You have rejected God. And so Jesus has challenged what? His understanding of goodness. He gets it. Disheartened by the saying, He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We come now to the second conversation. It builds on the first The second begins in verse 23. It goes through to verse 27. The man having left, Jesus wants to impress the significance of what the disciples have just witnessed. He wants to impress its significance upon them. So looking around, he pinpoints the twelve, and he says to them, directing his comments right at them, verse 23, how difficult, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth, To enter the kingdom of God. It is an idol. And it will act as an idol. A tremendous impediment. It it, it, it will prevent them from abandoning all. From purchasing the pearl of great price. It will prevent them from resting in me alone. How difficult it will be for those. Who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How do the disciples respond? Verse 24. They're amazed at his words. Why? We'll get there in a moment. The rest of verse 24. But Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Wonderful illustration in the 25th verse. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Again, look at their response, verse 26. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who? Who? can be saved. You see, he's correcting their thinking. These 12 are looking on, and they see this young man, uh, a religious leader, a religious official, a ruler, a wealthy man. You know, a man who thinks he's kept the commandments, meaning a man who's done his best. He's never intentionally gone out of the way to hurt anyone. And a man who is wealthy, but, you know, undoubtedly he has used his wealth He's given to the synagogue. He's given to the temple. He's given to God. He's given to the poor. Here here is a morally upright. Here is a morally respectable man. Here is a man of some position. And here is a man of great wealth. If he can't be saved, then our question is this. What hope is there for anyone else? If he doesn't get in, then who on the face of God's earth gets in? If he doesn't inherit the kingdom, if he doesn't inherit eternal life, then what hope is there for anyone else? You see, the twelve function on the premise that material blessing is a sign of God's favor. They're wrong. The twelve think God rewards moral behavior with material blessing. And the twelve conclude erroneously that this is a man with whom God is pleased. Just look how wealthy he is. Look at the position and the prestige. Look at what he's done with his wealth. Look at the good life, respectable life, moral life, civil life that he's lived. Surely God favors him. What's that you say? He's out? He's excluded? That it's impossible for the rich, the wealthy, to enter the kingdom of God? What's that you say? That's bizarre. That it is easier for a camel... To go through the eye of a needle. That's impossible. Then for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, they are astonished. They are amazed. Then who can be saved? Jesus answers in verse 27. He looked at them and said, With man, it is impossible. There's no hope for any man. It is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. You take the best man. You take the most respectable man. You take the most morally upright man. You take the most generous man. You take the most giving man. It is impossible for him to be saved. Who can be saved? With man, it is impossible, categorically. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. It leads to a third conversation, begins in verse twenty-eight, ends in verse thirty-one. Peter stands forth; he speaks. He has that saying. He has that saying which the Lord Jesus directed to the young man while he was still present. Take what you have, sell it, give it to the poor. Come, follow me. Peter, Peter, that's ringing in his ears, and so. Peter grabs that, he holds on to it, and he builds on it. Verse 28, he began to say to him, See, we have, we've done that. We have left everything and followed you. And what's Christ's response? Verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel. Do you remember his three terms of discipleship as he gives them? He states them so clearly in chapter 8, verse 34, that if anyone would come after him, what must they do? They must deny themselves. They must take up their cross, and they must follow him. Peter is claiming that's, that's what we have done. And Jesus seems to affirm it. Yes, that is what you have done. And here's, here's my promise to you. There is none who will do that. There is none who will deny himself. There is none who will pick up his cross. There is none who will follow me. In other words, there is none who will give up everything but what? Verse 30. Who will not receive a hundredfold. Wonderful promise. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, In other words, they'll be replaced. I don't think in this instance the Lord Jesus is speaking materially. I think he has in view the church. And he has the wonderful blessings and privileges and gifts of membership in the church and in the body of Christ. And all those spiritual blessings which are ours in the Lord Jesus Christ, we enjoy them all now. They more than make up for anything we lose. Notice his next statement. Even those blessings are colored by what? Persecution. This is a day of persecution. This is a day of tribulation. This is a day of affliction. And in the age to come, eternal life. Two ages. You remember this. There is a present age and there is the age to come. We live in this strange, odd period when these two ages overlap. The age to come, it was inaugurated at Christ's first advent. But the present age actually doesn't end until Christ's second advent. And we live with the tension of being in two ages. The present age and the age to come. And so we enjoy, spiritually speaking, the blessings of the age to come. Blessings which are ours as we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And yet we live with the affliction associated with the present age. And yet the Lord Jesus promises great blessing accompanied by persecution, accompanied by affliction, but there is an age to come. And the present will give way to eternity. The old creation will give way to the new. And we will enter our reward, eternal life. That's why, for example, I mean, this is throughout Scripture, throughout the Gospels in particular. But you think, for example, in terms of the Beatitudes, and you think of the promises that Christ gives in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yes, they possess it now. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's future. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's future. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed, blessed are, are, the, are the merciful, for they shall be mercied. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are the persecuted, for there it is, the kingdom of heaven. All of those promises are in the future of assurance. Yes, we've entered the kingdom of God, Yes, we possess the kingdom of God, but we are awaiting the consummation of all things, the age to come, when these promises will become realities. Peter, you've left it all. And my boy, Peter, you have no idea what's just around the corner. (laughs) There's a lot more coming. And the affliction and the suffering and the persecution that you, my disciples, will, will undergo. The affliction and the persecution and the suffering that all my people will experience the affliction and the persecution and the suffering that my mystical body will experience here on earth. Yes, you've given it all up. You have denied yourself. You have taken up your cross, and you are following me. Hear my words. There is a day coming. There is a day dawning when we will enter our reward, the promise of eternal life. There you have three conversations. The first between Jesus and a young man. Again, that was verses 17 through 22. A conversation between Jesus and the 12, verses 23 through 27. And a conversation between Jesus and Peter, although the other disciples are most certainly included. Verses 28 through 31. Now, as promised, I want to derive five truths from what we've looked at. And Ricky's going to bring these five in sequence as we go through them up behind me here on the screen. Truth number one. So as we make our way, weave our way through these three conversations and we get a real feel for what's going on here and what the Lord Jesus is saying, first to the young man, then to the twelve, then to Peter, these, at least these five truths, many more besides, but five that we're going to focus on. They, they, they leap up out of the written page. and I pray God will grant us understanding and help us to apply these five truths. Number one is this. We see this from the text. Mere interest in religion is useless. Do you believe that, friend? Mere interest in religion is useless. This young man who approaches the Lord Jesus, kneels down before him, asks a wonderful question what must I do to inherit eternal life? merely had an interest in religion, but nothing more. Here's the sad reality. If a young man like this were to appear today in this church, how would we receive him? A young man of such notoriety, a young man of such prominence socially, perhaps politically, a young man of such sustenance, prosperity, wealth, were to come and ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Many of us would direct him to say a little prayer and slap him on the back and welcome him. Not so the Lord Jesus You don't understand what you're asking because your starting point is all wrong. You call me good. You don't have a clue what goodness is. First things first. Before I can answer the question, before I can point you to the way, you must be first convinced in your heart of hearts that you aren't already on the way. You must be convinced of your utter sinfulness. You must be convinced that you are not good in God's sight. And that is the starting point. How many today have a mere interest in religion? A mere interest which is useless. They have some thoughts of heaven. They get a warm fuzzy feeling when they think about seeing grandma in heaven. Yeah, I like thinking about heaven. And they seek after heaven once in a while. But their pursuit of the gospel, their pursuit of Christ, their pursuit of the kingdom is not first thing in their life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The question, friend, is not if you sit down at night and think about going to heaven once in a while. The question is not, do you have an assurance that, yeah, Jesus loves you and you're going to heaven. The question is not, yeah, you know, I go to church and I, I try to be morally upright and I've said a prayer and I do these things and I think I believe that. No, the question is this. Do we pursue it above and beyond anything else? That is the road the Lord Jesus takes this young man down. Because this young man must learn, firstly, that a mere interest in religion is absolutely Useless. Second lesson, the second truth is this. Self-righteousness is the greatest obstacle to entering the kingdom. Self-righteousness is the greatest obstacle to entering the the, the kingdom. So look again at his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Gently, graciously, compassionately. Jesus takes him to the law to challenge his concept of goodness. And yet this man won't let go. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And then Jesus takes him again to the law, the tenth commandment, and, and, and just lays bare the covetousness of his heart, lays bare this reigning idol in his heart, and the fact that this is his idol, and that he does have other gods before the one true living God. And this man, disheartened, walks away, for he had great possessions. The obstacle, what prevents him from entering the kingdom, is this conviction, this resting upon his own righteousness. Here's a fascinating question. Why do people do that? Why do people rest, or rather, why do people overrate, overestimate their righteousness? Three answers briefly. The first is this. They misunderstand the spiritual nature of the law. They misunderstand the spiritual nature of the law. You think of what the Lord Jesus says made so clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. That is the spiritual meaning of the commandment, thou shalt not murder. But if we go to the law and we see thou shalt not murder, we think to ourselves, well, I never murdered anyone. Therefore, I have obeyed the law. Therefore, I am good. No, we have lost sight. We have not understood the spiritual meaning of the law, that the law expresses the act. But in identifying the act, the law is also pinpointing the desire from which the act arises. And that is what the Lord Jesus makes so clear, that it isn't merely the act of murder that condemns you. It is the desire that manifests itself in murder that condemns us. And that desire is seen when we are angry with our brother. We have an overinflated opinion of ourselves. We overrate our self-righteousness because we do not understand the spiritual nature of the law. Number two, they think well of themselves. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I watch the news and I see what other men and women get up to. And I keep up to speed on the scandal in our society and the prevalence of... Uh, of debauchery in our society. Well, I'm not like that. Thank God I'm not like other men. And we have an overflated opinion, estimation of our own righteousness. Third reason is this they misjudge themselves. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Let me repeat the truth self righteousness is the greatest obstacle to entering. The kingdom. Martin Luther uh, wrote the following words. This is good. Think it through. Every one of us has a pope in his belly. Every one of us has a pope in his belly. Something that pleads for the merit of our works. Everyone. Each one in this room right now, if you think you're excluded, you're really darkened in your understanding. Each one of us has a pope in our belly. Something that pleads for the merit of our works. And one of the chief reasons we do that is because we have such a skewed understanding of what it means to be righteous. Such a deficient understanding of what it means to be good. I was thinking of this yesterday. I dropped Allison (laughs) off at the airport because she's gone up to Ontario to visit her mom. I dropped her off yesterday. And I was thinking of this as we were approaching DFW Airport and, and saw the planes taking off. It looks like they're almost suspended in air, doesn't it? It looks like they aren't even moving, just sort of standing still. Yet you know they're already going 300, miles an hour, and they're going to max out at 600 miles an hour or something like that. And then here, there I am in my little Ford Fusion. I look off to the side, and there are telephone poles and fences and railings, and I look like I'm going so fast. See, what's the difference? When I look out the window, I, I have something by which to gauge my speed. There is another object that gives me perspective as to how fast I'm moving because I see those telephone poles going by, 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 by. But when I look up at a plane, there is nothing to give perspective. There is nothing behind it. If there were trees behind it in the sky or a fence, I could see just how fast that jet was moving. But I don't have any perspective because there's nothing there to give me the perspective. That's what it's like when it comes to our goodness. We fail to evaluate our goodness We fail to evaluate our righteousness from a proper perspective. And as a result, we have an over-afflated opinion of ourselves, like this young man, good teacher, you're good, I'm good. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? You know, wink, wink, I'm not really asking what I need to do. We both already know what I do do. I'm just looking for you to affirm me in the way. Why does he do that? Because his perspective is completely out of whack, deficient. Distorted. Here's our perspective, friends. It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was always gentle, but never soft. These are words of another preacher. He was always gentle, but never soft. He was bold, but never brash. He was pure, but never prudish. He was full of mercy, but not at the expense of justice. He was full of wrath, but not at the expense of grace. In everything. He was submissive to his heavenly father. And he gave everything for his sheep. He obeyed his parents. He kept the law of God. He forgave his enemies. He never lusted. He never coveted. And he never lied. In all that Christ did during his whole life, and especially as his life came to an end, he loved God with his whole being and loved his neighbor as himself. That is what it means to be good. If this young man had addressed Jesus as good teacher with that meaning in view, do you know what his question would have been? His question would not have been, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He would have prostrated himself before the Lord Jesus and begged for mercy. He would have pleaded for forgiveness. He would have been at an End of himself, looking away from himself, pleading for mercy. Oh, self-righteousness is the greatest obstacle to entering the kingdom. Third lesson is this. The heart must be broken before, before faith can take root. The heart must be broken before faith can take root. That is what the Lord Jesus is doing with this man. His heart isn't broken. And so he doesn't. when the man comes to him with a question, the Lord Jesus doesn't simply say, believe. That's what we'd probably say. Well, just believe. Say this prayer after me. That's not what the Lord Jesus does. The Lord Jesus knows, well, before faith can take root, this man must be broken. This man must understand who he is. The heart must be broken before faith can take root. And so he takes them firstly to those six commandments. Well, that's not working. All these I've kept from my youth. And then he takes them to the tenth commandment, and by consequence of the tenth commandment to the first commandment. He shows him his sinfulness, the goal of which is to break his heart. And yet he's hardened in his obstinacy and he walks away. Conversion, the heart must be broken before faith can take root. We see it in the example of the Apostle Paul. Paul leads us down this road in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. He tells us that when it comes to the law, he thought he was blameless. As he grew up and as he was a young man, he was a Pharisee. He was a scholar. He was a teacher. He was a lecturer. He was, I dare say, he was just like this man. Here we have a mirror image of the Apostle Paul before Christ saved him. All these I have kept from my youth. And then he tells us in Romans 7 verse 7 that he wouldn't have known what sin was apart from the law, apart from the commandment. That is apart from the spirit of bondage bringing the law home to show him who he really was. And which commandment was it that the spirit used to convince Paul of his sin to break him? It was the tenth commandment. You shall not covet. In the instance of this young man, he walked away. In the instance of the Apostle Paul, the hound of heaven grabbed him. And the spirit of bondage broke him. And the spirit of bondage cultivated poverty of spirit. He understood who he was. His covetousness, his idolatry, his rebellion against God. And through his heart being broken, faith was able to take root. Fourth lesson is this. Conversion is laying our affections at Christ's feet. Conversion is laying our affections at Christ's feet. That this man will not do. The issue is his affections. What do you, what do you love? What do you think about? What do you dream about? What gets your juices flowing? I mean, what, what, what do you live for? What gets your heart beating, pumping His wealth, And he will not listen to the Lord Jesus as he challenges him. He will not listen. He turns a deaf ear as the Lord Jesus drives his point right home that the issue is your heart. The issue is the affections of your heart and what your affections are set upon. You must be converted. Conversion is turning from self to God. Conversion is turning from sin to holiness. Conversion is turning from the worship of idols the worship of the one true living God. Conversion, let me repeat it, is laying our affections at Christ's feet. A.W. Tozer writes, plain sense ought to tell us that anything that makes no change in the man who professes it makes no difference to God either. Let me repeat that. Plain sense ought to tell us that anything that makes no change in the man who professes it makes no difference to God either. A gospel which claims to save people without changing them is not the gospel. A gospel which claims to save people without changing them is a whole lot of things, but it is not the gospel. Conversion is laying our affections at Jesus' feet. Fifth lesson is this: God's sovereign power provides hope for the broken. God's sovereign power provides hope for the broken. The disciples, you can just sort of picture them there, their mouths hanging open, their eyes wide, and they blurt out that question: well, if he can't be saved, I mean, this is the ideal. He represents the ideal. If he can't be saved, then who can be saved? And Christ responds, with men all things are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God's sovereign power provides hope for the broken. You see, we have a legal problem. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Cursed is everyone. Who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. That's our legal problem. We're cursed in God's sight. Here's the good news. Jesus removes the curse. We have a moral problem. Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Here's the good news. Jesus changes the heart. So our problem is twofold. We can't save ourselves. We can't inherit the kingdom. We can't even believe in God. Why? We have a legal problem. We are cursed. We are condemned in God's sight because we have broken his law. Compounding our legal problem, we have a moral law problem. Not only have we broken God's law, we actually hate his law. And we actually hate the lawgiver. That is the predicament in which we find ourselves. Hence the Lord Jesus says, with man it is impossible. No one can be saved. But for God, all things are possible. The answer to our legal problem is the Lord Jesus who removes the curse at Calvary's cross. The answer to our moral problem is the Lord Jesus Christ who changes our hearts. God's sovereign power provides hope for the broken. Now go all the way back with me as we conclude to verse 17. Follow along again as I read it for us. And as he was passing, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you understand now Christ's response? We can sum it up in a word. Nothing. You can do nothing to inherit eternal life. The Lord Jesus can't give him that answer right up front. Why? Because this man is still convinced he can do something. And he will not let go. He will not let go of his self-righteousness. And he will not let go of the idolatry of his heart. He will not come to God in childlike dependence. Remember... Back in verse 15, "...truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it." That this man will not do. He does not come to God in brokenness. He does not come to God in a spirit of hopelessness and helplessness. He does not come to God in an attitude of poverty of spirit. He comes to God puffed up by his self-righteousness. He comes to God in his pride. And he comes to God with the idolatry of his heart firmly rooted in place. This is no child. This is a proud man in the eyes of God. The answer to his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Nothing. But before you can understand that, you must rid yourself of any idea that you can do something. And when you rid yourself of that notion and understand that with man all things are impossible, but with God all things are possible, you will come to God. And you will cry, Abba, Father. And you will come with arms extended. And you will come in brokenness. And you will come in absolute dependence. And you will come through me. My friend, that is the message of the gospel. And here are some of the most precious words out of God's holy word. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Because when we come to the Lord Jesus in childlike faith, God takes the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, he imputes it to us, whereby we become good in his sight. We become righteous in his sight. Because we stand in the one who alone is good. Our Father, we praise you for the gospel. We praise you for the plan of redemption. And we praise you for your glorious grace. Open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts. And may we truly take these things to the inner man. May we not be guilty of being hearers of the word but not doers. And may we truly be doers, effectual doers of all that you have shown us from your word this day. For those outside the kingdom, for those dead in their trespasses and sins this day, we plead on their behalf and ask that you might be compassionate, ask that you might be merciful. Show them their sinfulness and their abject need of Christ. and Bring them to the cross. Bring them to the Savior, Savior, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. We ask this in those precious and worthy name. Amen.